You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Rasinsinski and I, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, this podcast series is all about voicing our differences on the one topic that brings us together, namely systematic investing using the often overlooked but very robust strategy of trend following. We hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to learn more by diving into the back catalog and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Jem, where we, among many other things, discussed how the ultra-low skew has created a dangerous situation for the economy and when the situation might turn back to normal. So you don't want to miss that episode, but also... I would encourage you to listen to the Wednesday episode where we, this week, we spoke with Marco Papik, partner and chief strategist at Clock Tower Group. And it was a conversation on geopolit geopolitical analysis and how it can be used to predict the future based on his recent book, Geopolitical Alpha, an investment framework for predicting the future. And as we all know and have learned this year, geopolitics are once again dominating uh, the world markets. So if you missed any of these conversations, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to these episodes as soon as you've finished listening to Mark and I today. Mark, it's great to be back with you on this US holiday week where a combination of Fed minutes and thin liquidity did provide a little bit of excitement. How are you doing? How have you been since we last spoke? Very good. Had a nice Thanksgiving and uh, you know, I think now we're getting close to the end of the year. We're getting close to Christmas and so everyone starts to thinking about what should I do for the holidays from a trading perspective? And what do I have to do to get ready for 2023? Yeah, we may even have a Christmas rally. Who knows? You never know. Um, we have a great uh, lineup of topics. I know I say that every week, but I think they're great every week. So uh, look forward to diving into those. Um, of course, if we take a quick look at what was going down this uh um, holiday week, uh, the Federal Reserve did release their minutes from their last open market committee meeting. Uh, it was released 2 p.m. on Wednesday, the afternoon before Thanksgiving. And there are really few days on the calendar where liquidity is razor thin and Thanksgiving Eve is one of them. The minutes were particularly anticipated as several Fed speakers had recently hinted at reducing the magnitude of rate hikes going forward. That suspicion was affirmed with the uh, participants' view uh, section. The extract quote or the exact quote um, uh, was a substantial majority of participants judged that the that a slowing in the pace of increase would likely soon be appropriate. And the key words in that quote were substantially substantial majority because we have to remember that uh, voters uh, on the committee they don't need to be unanimous. A simple majority is required. And a substantial majority tells me that that's what they have. Markets interpreted the statement as the Fed communicating that the December hike will not be 75 basis points, but rather 50 basis points. Uh, the minutes also acknowledge that rate hikes impact the economy with a lag, and they are starting to see evidence of slowing. But any hint of policy action in the new year was avoided entirely. As expected, traders took the news as unambiguously positive and rallied both stocks and bond prices into the close. The 30-year closed the day at 7.73% yield well off the peak of 4.38% that was hit last month and the S&P 500 rallied back above 4,000 to the highest level since the kickoff of earnings seasons. Despite the, despite the bounce higher, the index remains about 20% below the peak reached in the first few trading days of this year. Next week will be a data-heavy week with consumer confidence, GDP, pending home sales, jolts, and finally, the monthly employment report will come out on Friday. Consensus is looking for the economy to add 202,000 jobs in the month, which would be the lowest since December 2020. Given the recent upward drift in weekly employment data, it may turn out that the consensus estimate is too high and that the actual report will come in below the 200,000 level. 
We will, of course, all know this on Friday. And for those of you who like financial history, yesterday, Friday, was the 14th anniversary of the Fed launching the quantitative easing initiative in response to the unfolding global financial crisis. How time flies. Let me bring you in, Mark, here and just touch on some of the things that have caught your attention since we last spoke a few uh, weeks ago. Um, What's been on your radar? Well, I think the important part from our point of view is this is that how the markets change and so that you can make money when rates are going up. You could also make money when rates are going down. And so there, I think that a theme that I think we're going to touch on this uh, this you know, week is can trend followers make money going forward after a great year? And the answer is yes. And a part of it is because what we're seeing is is, is that there we'll, we'll call it the inverted U shape of markets is that sometimes they can overextend in one direction and they'll come back the other way. And if if your model can pick up that that reversals, that you could make money both in an up and a down market. Yes, I mean, this definitely is the big question that uh, a lot of people have been asking. Uh, you know, is it too late to embrace trend following after such a good run? And we'll definitely dive into uh, a, a lot of that actually today and some uh, some additional uh, topics. I think uh, for this week, trend following had a relatively quiet week, although I do think we're still in this correcting phase. So I suspect weekly performance, uh, at least the ones I've seen so far, are slightly down. Uh, of course, adding to the uh, negative performance we saw already uh, at, at this stage of, of November. And not surprising, the dovish tone coming from the Fed, you know, the short positions in fixed income, as well as the long positions in the US dollar, maybe with the exception of the Mexican peso, came under pressure. Uh, and um, and also the energy sector, where prices continue to ease, despite actually things cooling down uh, somewhat over here uh, in Europe. Um, looking at position data, by the way, for Brent contracts, and that confirmed one of the largest speculative liquidations of the year. Uh, net managed money positions, that includes, I think, CTAs in Brent contracts, fell about 70 million barrels on the back of a 53 million barrels uh, of long liquidations. Uh, and the establishment of a around $18 million, oh, not dollar, $18 million barrel of fresh shorts, making the largest weekly reduction in net uh, length since early March, uh, when extreme volatility, of course, prompted some exodus. Uh, net spec positions as a share of open interest are now back down uh, to about uh, 6%, which is uh, the lowest level since uh, early August, I think. Um, I do expect, though, that the mixed positions that trend followers will have in, in equities, um, I think we're not quite in a synchronized mode where everybody is short all equities and all, all you know. So I think that uh, sector probably produced a little bit of positive returns this week. And also the grains and metals uh, most likely did the same. Soft, on the other hand, probably were down for the week, mostly due to coffee, um, which had a quite a big up move against short exposure. My own trend barometer finished at 30, which is uh, confirming the negative month we're having so far for the industry. And if I look at the industry data very quickly, the beta 50 as of Thursday down 4.6% for the month, uh, up 14.3 for the year. SGCTA index down 4.76, up 20.65. The SuckGen trend down 5.7, up 28.1 for the year. SuckGen short-term traders index down 57 basis points, up about 12 for the year. And finally, uh, to contrast that, MSCI World Index is up just shy of 5% this month, down 17 and a quarter for the year. And the World Government Bond Index up almost two for the uh, for the month but still down for the year. And the S&P 500 up almost 4% for the month, but down 15.5% for the year. All right, Mark, um, no specific questions uh, in for this week. So we have the luxury that we can dive into uh, our own topics uh, for the week. Um, Most of them actually uh, coming from you. So thank you so, so much for doing that. But one we kind of agreed on that really is important to talk about, as you alluded to earlier, is this big question out there. And that is, one, have I kind of missed the the trend-following performance? Is it too late? Uh, And of course, uh, as always, uh, I would say, 
our friends over at AQR came out with a paper kind of addressing uh, this topic. Uh, and uh, the paper is called Trend Following Why Now? A Macro Perspective. And um, let's dive into that. Um, I'm going to let you kick it off. Um, and I'll kind of uh, share my observations uh, along the way. And I'm interested to see what what you took away from the paper and also whether you agree on their observations or not. Well, the first thing is that when you ask a trend follower, will trends continue? That's like going to a restaurant and asking the waiter, "Does is the food good here? So <laughs> generally, you're always going get, to get the answer that, of course it is. It's, you know, trends last longer than expected, so of course you should be a trend follower. So, so you have to look at the data and you have to look at uh, in two contexts. One, what is the environment? And two, uh, what do we know about the history of trend following and, and the potential for continuation? So I think that the AQR paper focuses on the environment, and this is fundamental to the way I look at markets, and so I agree with their, how they approach this. And the idea that macro events and macro trends drive prices. Prices can drive my macro events, but the line of causality is usually from the macro environment to the real environment in the, in the price space. And a trend follower will usually say, well, this macro environment is really hard to understand. It's really hard to extract. The data could be delayed. The data could be uh, giving false signals. So I'm just going to focus in on price because that's where all of the information is embodied. That's where it's all weighted and bundled together. But when we want to think about forward-looking and what the environment would look like, we have to sort of say, what is the macro environment today? What is the macro environment going to be tomorrow in 2023? And are those environments going to be conducive to trends in prices? And so given that, I, I think that they do a good job of, of trying to tell us that, that, yes, the macro environment is going to be favorable, so consequently, we can be able to uh, uh, sort of say that your investment and in trend following should be is well placed and it should continue. Yes. Okay. No, I uh, completely agree with that. Um, and um, and one of the things they do in their paper is they look at they use the SG trend uh, following index, which is perfectly fine, although it starts in year two thousand, which maybe actually be the beginning of a slightly different environment than what we saw in the 70s, 80s, and the 90s. That's at least my own uh, contention. Um, but they do break down performance uh, in one of the tables that I noticed is, of course, where they break it down by by decade. So they have year 2000 to 2009, 2010 to 2019, and then 2020 uh, until the present day. And, and what you do see, uh, and that kind of confirms with what you're saying that maybe we are seeing a different environment is that the decade from 2010 to 2019 does stand out in terms of a much lower return um, compared to uh, 2000 to 2009 and of course from 2020 and onwards. Now if you look at say the 60-40 portfolio which they kind of compare it to you find exactly the same pattern it's just at a different decade uh, where the first decade, 2000 to 2009, um, was pretty low. Um, but then, of course, and this is a short sample, so I don't really put that much credence to it, but, um, but of course, the current one uh, from 2020 and onwards is, is, is the lowest of them all, um, and not least because of what's happening in this year for the 60-40 portfolio. Um, so, so in that sense, you know, a 10-year period, it's not unlikely that any investment, I guess you could say, will behave vastly different from the previous uh, decade and also, of course, what might happen in the future. Um, right. you, you have to think about how do you create alpha or how do you create your returns? Is it structural? So, you know, uh, so is there structural alpha that there's something uh, systemic to the markets themselves that you're allowed to extract alpha? Uh, is it environmental? You know, is the environment such that you could be able to generate alpha? And so, if the environment changes, that alpha will go away. Is it behavioral? 
because behavior, uh, you know, is consistent or uh, or irrational that you're trying to exploit. So there's a little bit of everything here in trend following, but I think that what we're really seeing and what was really the highlight of the AQR paper is is that the period post the global financial crisis was the lost decade for trend following. Now, historians often talk about uh, periodization, you know, that we always try to give, you know, names to periods. It's the, you know, age of freedom, the age of inflation, if you're economic historian, it's the age of fixed income, uh, the golden age of, of free trade. So if we wanted to put a periodization to trend following, the period after the great financial crisis, that decade from 2010 to you know 2020, was the period of the lost decade for trend following. So now what you have to do is sort of say, well, when we say it's the lost decade, what was it about that environment that made it unattractive for trend following? And then say, what is it about the current environment that makes it attractive for trend following? So. First, we could just look at some of the macro environment. This is that we were in a low growth environment for that period. And the low growth was across most of the world. There was low inflation. So everybody was at, at, you know below their 2% target. So we weren't getting a lot of uh, variation in price. And you weren't getting any volatility in price. So we had low inflation and it was also very uh, stable prices. So we had limited number of crises. I think you had the European uh, crisis early on in the decade. Uh, we had the temp temper tantrum, you know, from uh, Bernanke. But for that, we didn't really have a lot of, you know, big crisis events over that decade. We had quantitative uh, easing across most central banks and the policies of most central banks were consistent. So everybody was following uh, quantitative easing with trying to target around 2% inflation. We had fiscal policy that was fairly similar. So what we had is a, a situation where you had a, a very stable environment with dominant monetary policy, consistent policy across countries, low inflation, so very dis, uh, little uh, dislocations in prices across many markets. And, and then you sort of say like, well, would there be trends in that environment? And the answer is no. So, so consequently, that was why it was lost, is, is that it wasn't as though that the models were broken. There was no opportunities to take advantage of. So we often talk about, you know, from a trend-following perspective, what is your, you know, signal to noise, that you make money because you're searching out a signal relative to, to the noise or the volatility in markets. Well, here we had low volatility, but given that low volatility was persistent for a long period of time, you didn't have any you know, large moves in price, so your signal to noise was still relatively low. And so it was hard for people to make money. Now, that doesn't mean that in any given year, you know, a trend follower couldn't make money. Uh, there, weren't, uh, there were also opportunities in specific markets. So we had uh, a big grain move in, you know, during that decades. Uh, so we had some commodities uh, you know, dislocations. But in general, it was it was a tough environment. So now let's roll forward to the pandemic. And so all of a sudden, this is that you had the pandemic, big dislocation. Uh, you know, it, it was a crisis. But even that was sort of a short-lived crisis. But now, what we're getting into a new environment, where let's look at the same set of factors. Inflation is 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 up. It's been really high. It's you know when you look at what it was relative to the lost decade. You know, in some cases, you could almost say to say uh, inflation is up by a factor of seven to eight, you know, uh, you know, 10. You know, if you had a 1% inflation environment, now we got a 10% in Europe. That's that's a factor of 10. So the le level of inflation has gone up. The volatility of inflation has gone up. There's uh, greater uh, growth differences, okay? Uh, we're seeing that central banks have, are behaving different. So emerging market central banks have much higher interest rates than developed uh, uh, developed countries. They actually were sort of reacted a little bit first. Uh, we see that there's now growing policy differences where you know some central banks are saying, well, I might go slow. 
even the ECB is sort of saying we're in a different environment, so our monetary policy may not have to match what the Fed is doing because we're suffering from a different type of inflation problem. So, so consequently, is this is that the current environment is radically different than the lost decade. So now what we then have to do is say like, and that can explain why we made uh, made money in the last year for following trends. So now the question comes in, what are we going to see going forward? So are we going back to an environment like the lost decade? Or are we going to go back to an environment that was pre-great financial crisis? And, you know, my view would be is this, is that we're probably going back to, you know, the pre-financial crisis, you know, era. And partially because what we're seeing is, is that, that a lot of the uh, differences in the macro environment are going to persist. So a perfect example would be is, is that we have 10 plus percent inflation in Europe. Okay. Well, is that going to get down to 2% in the next year? Uh, I don't think it's very likely. And even if it does, well, then we're going to sort of see that there's going to be a tremendous trends going in the opposite direction. So what drove interest rates higher, you know, in the last year could also now, if we have uh, a movement quickly back to this, uh, the same environment of 2% inflation, we're going to have uh, an opportunities to make money in just the opposite direction. Uh, Monetary policy is going to be different. Uh, we're already seeing that uh, that now we have greater discussion about uh, perceptions of monetary policy. So look at look at the Fed, for example. Is this is that uh, in the last decade, you know, we had great forward guidance. Now, whether it was the proper for, forward guidance is a, never, not a different question, but we had great forward guidance. We knew that that from one month to the next, rates are still going to be close to zero. Now what you find is most traders are say, saying is that, is it going to be 75? Is it going to be 50? What's the terminal rate? You know, when are they going to uh, pause? Are they going to pause? So there's more choices. There's more uncertainty. And given all of that uncertainty, that causes delays in decisions. And that gets down to the fundamentals is, is that Delays in decisions will cause trends in prices. And those delays in decisions are caused from macro trends that are not always obvious. So even when you ask me about, well, what's the environment look look like or what, what are you seeing? I said that we're clearly in a stagflation environment, but there's enough evidence that would say that, you know, what is clear for me may not be clear to other people. So durable goods was actually positive. If you look at uh, PMIs, you know a lot of them are moving below 50. So here you've got something as if you know, last the third quarter GDP was actually pretty strong in the United States. So you've got some data that says, look, it's not that bad. It's potential we're going to go into soft landing. I can look at other data and I get a very different picture. And some reasons, because of that uncertainty, that's why people follow trends and prices in prices, because it's just easier to follow than trying to decipher what the macro environment is looking like. Yeah, and I think it is important, uh, and it is an important point to maybe uh, appreciate when 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 you when we talk about trend following that that one of the th reasons why trend following works and continues to work is the fact that we as humans we don't take in new information at the same speed and and it's that process um that helps actually that is good for trend followers if, if something happens we all react to it the same way at the same time it's probably too quick for us to capture but if it's in a normal quote-unquote normal environment then um uh, we have a better chance of um adjusting our positions and and uh, extract these trends um, you mentioned another couple of things that I think well, are important. Just, yeah, just on that particular point, is, sure. is that there's a slight, there's a subtle difference. Is, is that uh, we uh, we're getting the information as fast as possible. It's our ability to process it that's it's actually slower. So, so for example, with Bloomberg, let's say the revolution of Bloomberg is is that as soon as a, you know a government information announcement comes out everybody has access to it. So 
by access to information is not what's the you know causing you know the uncertainty or the delay. It's my ability to process what that means that is the problem. <laughs> yeah, no, so, and and actually it, it, that that is very important um, because. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in the last um, five, maybe even 10 years, frankly, that with information being so readily available to everyone at the same time, at the speed of light almost, um, how would that um, impact things like long-term trend following? Um, and I certainly heard the argument over a number of years that this would benefit short-term trading rather than longer-term timeframes. And of course, that has not proven to be right. And we have argued that that would not be the case. Um, but I think it, a lot of people felt it was a logic, logical arg argument uh, that when information comes out so fast, you need to be fast to react. But as you say, it's not the speed of how fast the information comes, it's the speed of how fast it's processed. And going back to the fundamentals of trend following, a part of it, which I believe is that it's based on human behavior and humans have not changed. Therefore, the speed of process by humans is probably unlikely to change as well. Right. And and I guess I would say I was one of those people who thought that, okay, if information flow comes in faster, reaction times would be faster or movement to, you know, the equilibrium price would be faster. So therefore I should sort of look at faster models. So so I just say, you know, I was one of those people that said that that makes perfect sense. That's what I should do. I should test it. And you found out that the, after you test it, it's not exactly that it works that way. Is that? And so I guess I'd sort of say that I thought that that was going to be the movement because of faster information and processing. That then trend following should also move faster. And I come to the conclusion is is that in some cases yes but in general you can't sort of say that that would be the general conclusion what i probably would sort of say that uh, we have more information but because the markets that we look at are hard to price to begin with long-term trend following is effective and what i mean by that is is that and i'll use paul samuelson as an example he said markets are often uh long-term inefficient uh, or macro markets are inefficient, while micro markets are very efficient. So the arbitrage between you know sort of buying two 12 ounce ketchup bottles and a 24 ounce ketchup bottle is is pretty efficient. That, that we can arbitrage away those differences in price fairly quickly. But if you say, what is the value of the dollar right now? I don't think anybody has any agreement on what that is. If you say, what is the equilibrium interest rate? I don't think we have agreement on that. If you say, what is the uh, what is the value of corn right now? So what's the equilibrium price for corn that will clear the market appropriately right now? This is it. Yes, it is the price. But if you sort of say this, is that is there agreement about what that price is? The answer is no. And so the reason why we make money as trend followers is because we don't know as a market overall how to price the fair value of many of the macro markets we trade. So consequently, this is that there's room for trends to exist. Yeah. So I want to con just continue a little bit on this um, because you talked about um, uh, markets during that. And I, you know, I know people talk about it. I heard you say it a few times, the last decade for trend following. Ah, I don't really like that uh, description because frankly... Um, all investment strategies are going to go through quiet periods. And by the way, not all trend followers didn't make money in that decade. So I'm just cautious of using that terminology. But speaking about that decade, though, what I will say is there was one other thing that not a lot of people talk about, I think, in describing, let's call it the headwind that we faced. And that is the lack of weather volatility and what that did to commodities. Because when I look at the CRB index... And I look at the period from 2015 to the end of 2019, it was just stuck in a range. Nothing happened. Now, I know I didn't have time to look at individual um, markets, but still, I think it's a great indication of that even that part of our portfolio um, was facing some headwind. And, and so 
when when Schnabel from the ECB comes out saying we've gone from the great moderation to the great volatility, she's thinking about financial markets. I'm thinking commodities as well. And 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 all I can say is that we ha- have just recorded this week. It's not out uh, yet. Um, it'll be out, uh, I think, in about 10 days' time or so. Uh, a fantastic conversation with someone who studies weather cycles. And I learned so much about... Um, you know, some of what causes uh, not just changes in weather and global warming and all of that, but also weather volatility. And uh, I think he was pretty, um, um, what's the word here? He was pretty convinced, is the word I'm looking for, that we're heading in for a new era of weather volatility as well. And I think that can be um, useful, I hope, um, for um, trend followers as well, because of the diversification we have in in our portfolio. Um, so these, there are so many moving parts, and we tend to focus on the financial markets, the geopolitics, and all of that stuff. But for someone like um, at least the firm that I work for, where almost half the markets we trade are commodities, you know, the commodity part is equally uh, important. But I do agree that central banks had it such such, such an easy. Uh, ride in in the last uh, you know in that decade from 2010 to 2019 uh, where they could do no wrong uh, and in fact they did a lot of things wrong but it never got they never got caught out and that's what we are seeing now um, when you add so much liquidity uh, into that and and by the way it's an interesting thing and and I guess it shows um, maybe also a little bit about human um, behavior because Stanley Druckenmiller did a great interview uh, on CNBC a couple of weeks ago where he talked about what he had seen and how what he believed was that the Fed and other central banks were basically running below their expected inflation, their 2% uh, inflation target. And in order to just move inflation up by a few tenths of a percent, they made such a big policy error that it's like, uh, you know, uh, in order to uh, earn a little bit of, of of return, in this case, just earn the benefit of moving inflation from, say, 17 to 2%, they're now having the risk of inflation going from 2 to 10 which it did. So it's the opposite uh, asymmetric trade they did uh, compared to what we are normally focused on, where you take small risks in order to make a lot. They took a small risk in order to, to lose a lot uh, in that sense. Right. So, so now we got a lot to discuss just from your last comment, because, uh, you know, well, let's go back to, you know, first with the lost decade is, is that that doesn't mean that when I say that it doesn't mean that there weren't people who made money. I think that, uh, that you look at the overall indices were down and what you find out is, is, is that on average, you could still have made money during that period, but it was not the same as what you made in the nineties or the eighties. So it was just a, uh, a different, a, a big enough difference that it was noticeable. And second of all is, is that, you know, in a, from a from more competitive place, we also had a, a, a competition from other markets that on a relative basis that were made their alt- alternative investments more attractive than trend following. So uh, a perfect example would be private equity, which we're going to see how it differs now in the coming decade. This is that, you say like, I'm going to buy liquid, uh, you know, managed futures or CTA trend followings. And you found out that returns are a little bit lower than what they've seen in a prior decade. I could invest in private equity. I could get double digit returns and I don't have to worry about the pricing risk and liquidity because, you know, I only marked market once a year. This is it. That was from a competitive hedge fund business. It was really tough for trend followers to compete against that when you're when you mark to market your portfolio every day. So uh, the commodity int- area is interesting because I think that generally I find is, is that it's much harder to trade from the, uh, on a short side for commodities, even though you should be, you know, symmetric in terms of your behavior. Markets seem a little bit choppier from, uh, from the short side. And what you see that we had, we, we were at the end of the super cycle the super cycle then post a lot of uh, futures prices lower. And I think it was much tougher to make money in, in some of those commodity markets, you know, given the end of the super cycle, you didn't have speculative excesses. 
Plus, we did have a problem is, is that there were no big weather events. We were always hoping that you're going to have like a, a weather event in the Midwest that would cause, you know, grain prices to spike and you're going to make money on that trend. And, and uh, given the globalization of the grain markets to such is that we never had that localized, you know, weather shock that that you could really exploit. So so I, th- so I think that there was a lot, there's a lot more going on in, in that period. And, you know, when you talk about policy errors, I think that you have to start with the assumption that policy is made by humans. Humans are prone to error. And, and that the likelihood that we're going to get it wrong is uh, is pretty high. Absolutely. Uh, which is also why I think this is also one of my beliefs is that uh, this is why trend following will continue to work as a strategy because there is that to it that the people in charge will you know, it, it's unlikely they're suddenly going to get it right most of the time. Let's put it that way. Right. And and what we'll sort of say that the, the one thing that uh, if you say, say, will there be policy mistakes? The answer is yes. Now, uh, why you have to ask, why did those mistakes occur? And I probably sort of say that the hard part is the fact that we don't really know the lag structure between what we do in policy and what will be the reaction. Uh and I think that that's that's what we're having, you know, right now is is, is that we make uh, we're making assumptions when uh, about what will be the reaction to a rise in interest rates, but we don't really know at what point people are going to become very sensitive to higher interest rates. We do know the housing market is becoming very sensitive, okay, but other parts of the economy, it's not really clear. And I think that uh, it's the hubris of policymakers to think that they know that. The The other thing that I, I said is, is that an area that I've sp- spent time on is, is, is that uh, what is the kind of learning environment that we have in markets? And so when you think about it is, is that you know, a market is a is a learning environment. You know, you know, prices move. There's a feedback effect. Okay, uh, we do something. We expect a certain kind of reaction. Uh, and when you think about it, this is is that uh, there's a, a economist who wor- uh, worked in this area. He called it. Uh, it was Robin Hogarth, and he talked about uh, the learning environments for uh, for decision making. And he said that there's two kinds. There's kind and wicked environments. So in a kind environment would sort of say that the rules of the game are well-defined. Feedback is is really accurate and rapid. So we make action, we get immediate feedback, and patterns repeat itself over and over again. So that's a very kind environment. So we get to, quote-unquote, learn the environment. Another environment is what we call a, a wicked environment. And the wicked environment is that the Patterns are not always obvious and repeating. Uh, feedback could be delayed, so you don't get immediate gratification when you do something. And the rules are unclear and incomplete. And I would sort of say that markets are a very wicked environment, learning environment, not a kind environment. And because of that, policymakers will make mistakes. Yeah. And finally, not uh, let's move on to some, some other topics you brought along. But finally, I just want to say actually that uh, in the latest memo from uh, Howard Marks, which are always great readings, um, he kind of talks about it also uh, because it's from memory. He talks about the fact that you cannot know, so your prices are not necessarily made from certain events and news. Uh, they're they're made from how investors are reacting to them. And you can't always be sure of that reaction. Um, so so I think this is also, and which is again the human element. So um, yeah, it's kind of surprising that it's taking all this time for people really to open their eyes for kind of this uh, behavioral-based uh, finance, uh, which obviously we have been part of for for decades. But anyway, let's move on because there were a few other um, interesting titles in your in your outline that I want to get to. And tell me if we already um, uh, talked about it. Um, there's one you have down as poly crises. Um, I don't know if, whether we already talked about that, but then there is then the next one, which I, I guess is linked to um, Annie Duke. Uh, you have something called Quit versus Grit. So, so Annie Duke came out with her new book about uh, quit, and and I thought it was a great book. I read it. Uh, it's a quick read. 
I just sort of said that we always celebrate the people who show fortitude and never give up. And in reality is it takes a certain skill to actually be a quitter. Uh, the analogy I give is, is that for, you know, for a trend follower has stop losses is, is that we actually take pride in our quitting that, that we can cut our losses and hang on to our, our winners. Uh, and, and so, so I was thinking about this is that, wait a minute, didn't I read a book a few years before that had just the opposite premise? And then I, I look back over some of my reading list and there was uh, Angela Duckworth wrote a book called Grit. <laughs> so so here we got Grit versus Quit. <laughs> and you got uh, Annie uh, uh, Dukes versus Angela Duckworth, both AD and their, uh, their initials. Uh, I don't know if that tells us something, but... Uh, <laughs> but it's interesting is, is, is that trend followers have to, uh, they would like both books. And then you sort of say, how is that possible that a trend follower could like grit and quit at the same time? And yet, in some senses, is that when I was thinking about this a little bit more deep, deeply, is that ultimately is, is that the, the yin and yang of trend following is the quit versus grit decision. So, so we're constantly fighting between the grit versus quit. And and this and when I think about uh, about it, I said to you, so like, well, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, the grit idea is, is that that a trend follower believes that prices will continue to go in whatever direction you have. And in fact, you probably believe that they will last longer than what other people expect. So. So the whole idea of good trend followers, you got to have the grit to sort of stick with the trend. You got to hang in there and you got to hold on as, as long as possible. At the same time, we can say, say yes, we're great quitters because let's say once trends do uh, uh, change is that we're not beholding to a narrative. We're not beholding to a story. Is this it that they can say like, well, if prices are going up. I've got a great narrative associated with it. If prices going up. Well, I've got a different narrative. It's going to change. That we're great quitters in the sense that we're not afraid to take losses. So, so, so it's the combination of the two that will probably make a very good trend follower. Is is that he has to learn to sort of hang on with his grit and at the same time learn to be a quitter. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And by the way, I should say that. Uh, if people want to uh, listen to a great conversation, um, our co-host uh, Kevin Coldine had a great conversation on the Ideas Lab series uh, with Annie Duke. Uh, it was uh, really, uh, really fun and, and insightful. And, and she actually is uh, also a very uh, a, a great uh, person to uh, to have conversations with. She's uh, uh, you know not not only a good author, she's also a, a great uh, conversationalist. All right, let's move on. Um, there's obviously been a lot of talk, and I don't know if this is where we're going with this, but there has been some overshadowing events happening in the financial markets the last couple of weeks. I've kind of stayed away from it, um, it because it's in the crypto world, and that's not really what we do here. Uh, so I'm I'm curious whether the next subject has anything to do with that, Mark, but you did send something said, um, the Bessel fraud and regulation uh, as a headline for me to prompt you on. So, uh, are we going into the crypto world? Yeah, a little bit. Is it now? Now, I guess <laughs> I sort of say that I, I, but I take a different. I want to take a different take to this, and I said, and I probably sort of read a lot of the stories about uh, Sam Bankman-Fried only because it's it, to be a great voyeur of, <laughs> of craziness. Is that you, you say like you say. You can't make these stories up, so so it's so it's interesting reading, uh, albeit I've, I've never been a, uh, a player in the in the crypto market. But I go back to history. So so John Kenneth Galbraith, you know, wrote about the Great Depression. He also talked about what he called the bezel, and this is that when embezzlement occurs, is is that a period of time between. The, when an embezzler takes your money, but you don't realize it yet. So both people could be wealthy at the same time. So the person who took your money is wealthy and the person who uh, you know gave his money up perceives that he's still wealthy at the same time. And it's, it's, it's sort of this, this strange period that they call as the, the bezel before, before it becomes known that there's an embezzlement going on. Not sure whether there's embezzlement. We don't want to go down that path. But I started thinking about the fact is, is that what makes uh, 
us able to trade effectively in the futures markets that we often use in trend following. It's, it's because we do have a regulatory environment, is, is that there is a tremendous amount of transparency in the, uh, the markets from, you know, what goes on at the CME as a clearinghouse. And in, in, uh, we have transparency in contracting. We actually have the sanctity of contract enforcement. We do have regulation. And so for all the times we sort of, uh, I think most, trend followers and most people who trade are may seem to be anti-regulation. I think it's important that the the right regulation or a proper regulatory environment allows us to do what we want to do and we don't have to worry about the risk that the structure of the system is going to break down. And when you look at what we're seeing with FTX was this is that people Put their money into what they thought was an exchange. Well, it's not questionable whether it was, under the idea that there were certain uh, terms of agreement and that they would sort of hold their cash, you know, and not lend it out somewhere else. And so there was a certain uh, amount of transparency. Believed they believed that there was certain contracting going on. They believed that that their money was safe to some degree so it could be used for speculative purposes in other ways. And so you'd sort of say that, that we should actually be able to be appreciate the fact that the regulatory environment is an important part of what we do and it takes risk off the table. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've always um, thought about uh, in my time in the trend following space is um, how little I think it is appreciated how hard the regulation is for trend followers and CTAs under the CFTC and NFA. There are so much we can't do. We can't even talk about our own returns, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, um, and so I think that that is something I hope people will start to appreciate more, that even within, I mean, it took a long time for hedge funds to really become regulated but CTAs uh, I mean you know the firm I work for Dunn Capital we were one of the first firms I think we got regulated in 1976 I mean that that is a long long time to be regulated um, and it is valuable for investors to to know that and the fact that we are uh, you know, like our peers, uh, being audited on an ongoing basis. And these are not just uh, uh, small um, um, audits of any sort. I mean, the, these are detailed audits that you go through. That's one thing. The other thing I think that, um, the one thing that really annoys me a little bit about this whole thing, it's not so much that another crypto is blowing up. I, I think, frankly, that this is was to be expected. But it all it's, it relates to all the people who have been promoting these things, or and 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 frankly, even some really big alternative financial outlets. I don't think I need to mention them by name. I think everybody knows who they are. How they've been promoting these type of um, uh, you know whether it's yield farming, uh, whether it's certain cryptos and coins, whether it's FTX, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there is just doesn't seem to be any learning going on and any, um, I don't even know what the English word is, but uh, where they just look inside themselves, realizing how bad they have, you know, what a bad job they have done for the financial world in being so caught up in the moment about making lots of money in a short space of time, promoting these uh, type of things. Um, uh, some of them are being called out um, by people like Mark Cohodes, the famous short seller. I think he's done a great job. He actually laid out the whole uh, fraudulent um, argument about FTX uh, like uh, a month before it it, it happened. Um, so there are certain people who have done a great job, but by God, there's been a lot of people, uh, you know, promoting these uh, schemes uh, one way or the other. Um, and, and I hope that, again, I hope the fallout of all of this will, because I actually hope that crypto will survive, uh, and I think this is part of the growing phase um, that they're going through, but they need to weed out all these, um, these bad actors in their own uh, universe. They can send them to the metaverse for all I care, um, right. but they shouldn't be part of, of, of our world uh, if, if they a, want the trust. 
<laughs> There's a special place called the metaverse. There's a special for place for these people. It's called the metaverse, and so, um, and and they 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 but they shouldn't be part of any world where real people in good faith lose all their money um, based on on these type of things. Uh, in my opinion, right. all right. And, so we, yeah, and the, the the final question is is that. I don't think, and, and this it's sort of a, a metaphysical question, I don't think that people fully realize the importance of trust in all of the things we do in financial markets, especially in, in, in Anglo-Saxon law and all the previous. So we write contracts. We never can, can write a contract that'll take care of every contingency. So think of all the activities that we do in financial markets where sometimes I might transact with somebody over a phone or I might electronically under the idea that they're going to do what they say they're going to do what they tell me that they're that the, the, the actions they're going to take they're going to they're actually going to do I'm going to give money to an exchange so and they're going to sort of hold back and and properly margin and match all the trades appropriately is is that there's a tremendous amount of trust in what we do in financial markets and because we have trust then we can uh, and that uncertainty has been taken away we can then be able to focus our attention on the uncertainty of price or the uncertainty of the macro environment so so this is critical now i can argue about that there might be excessive regulation but the great value of regulation is is that it cre it reduces trust uncertainty, and that's good for all of us. Yeah. Now you also brought up uh, a point, which actually is something I discussed with Jim uh, last week, uh, which is something uh, he's super focused on. Um, of course, he's doing he's looking at that in the volatility and the option space. But you have a a, a topic here called liquidity and who takes the other side of trades. Um, so where where are we heading with that, Mark? Well, you know, and some of the work that you're doing with helping to pick managers is, is, is that you try to say, like, well, what are the questions I should always ask for due diligence? Yeah, and so, so you know, should I ask you, where, where did you get your ideas? How do you generate your research? But one question that always stands in my mind is, is that fundamental to what you do is you'd say, like, when you talk about your creation of alpha and you sort of say, well, I'm smarter and, you know, this is the reason why I create my alpha you should always ask the question is that, well, who takes the other side of your trades? So if you're so smart, is it because you're sort of assuming that everybody else is dumb? Is that the reason why you create alpha? Or is it some other reason? So even for trend followers, they should ask the question, is that who takes the other side of my trade? So if you know if if I'm believe the trends are going higher, so that and I'm a, a buyer, then someone has to be a seller. Why does that seller exist? And why are you able to exploit that, that selling for profit? And I think that's a fundamental question that you should often ask traders just to sort of get an idea of how they think about the markets or where they're being able to extract that. Because at the end of the day is, is that if I'm buying when the price is going up, I'm a liquidity taker. So I need a liquidity providers. So I always have to say is I gotta find a seller and I've got to sort of talk about what am I, uh, where is the liquidity coming from? And will there be enough when I have to do the opposite, you know, later on in the trade? It kind of reminds me of a story that circulated around. I think actually Michael Covell populated this point. And I, you might know, well, I don't think actually anybody really knows the the answer to it. Um, but I, but it could actually be at a time when you were working at John Henry because he, of course, made the point in his books that at the opposite trade of Nick Leeson was John Henry. Now, I have no idea if that's true. And if John Henry was there, so was all the other trend followers, uh, you could say. But it was a story, it was a narrative that was uh, was popular uh, when these books, first books came out. Um, but, uh, and, and it's... You know, it goes back a little bit to this fascination about. Uh, I, I take your point, by the way, in terms of generalizing. You know, who do you think you're? You know, is on the opposite side of of your trade, et cetera, et cetera. But, but actually, you could say there is a little bit of fascination at the moment, generally speaking, about the trades or the positions we as trend followers have. As you know, I've been kind of criticizing the investment banks for for a little while now for publishing and making these um, sort of um, newsworthy headlines about what CTA's positions are 
are and what they're you know what they're likely to be in a month's time and whatever creating some kind of sensational narrative about it um and um so so maybe that's just part of part of the game that uh, people are fascinated about uh, what what we as an industry are doing and and as you say well maybe also you should know who's who's on the other side of our trades right so so i think that every we always want to know who's on the other side of our trades as trend followers and then but then there's a whole group of people that we sometimes forget they want to know well what are those trend followers actually doing and and uh, you know are they pushing the market because i think that the the from an academic side there's always been the view that that trend followers are are herders and and at we're going to push prices away from equilibrium and that we're just uh, that our our trend following is irrational so consequently is is that you need want to find out what the trend followers are doing because they're actually going to cause you know dislocations in markets i don't think that that's true but that's the sort of common wisdom that most academics have, which I think is is misplaced. And and most investors, by the way, are herders, right? I mean, there's a reason why we have FOMO and all of that stuff going on these years. And so I think most investors are uh, at least uh, susceptible to uh, being caught in the moment when something is going up or something is going down. Um, you know, from that emotional side, we are hurt us from a different perspective because we're not doing it from an emotional point of view. We're just doing it from a pure price analysis point of view. So I think there's a that that's also an aspect that is not uh, always uh, taken into right. account when when these right. headlines are written. Um, there is good hurting and bad hurting. Just <laughs> so there's good volatility and bad uh, volatility. Of course, and, oh yes. <laughs> and, and as I always sort of say, the analogy I give is is that if I go into a town and I don't know where to eat and I'm walking down the street. There's two restaurants. Right. One of them has a line and the other one is empty. I'm going to go get in the line because the food is probably better there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And which is also why I think restaurants always start seat when they when new people come in the evening, they start seating them by the window first and then they fill it up uh, to <laughs> exactly. the inside later. So, so you got to create that herd, that herd mentality. <laughs> oh yes, of course, absolutely. All right, let's move on. Um you have another we have three more topics left. Um you have one called periods, ages and regimes. Um I kind of have a feeling what we're talking about here, but um, I'm going to give you the floor well, as usual. You know, I think that uh, when we look at the AQR piece and they looked about, well, what's the macro environment? This is that we have to look at what is the regime that we're we're facing. And so I always think of a regime as, as okay, where are we in the business cycle? Okay, where we are in the inflation cycle. So So that's more of a regime. But we talked earlier about the lost decade, and you chided me that you said, like, well, maybe it wasn't a lost decade. What we find that most historians like to sort of form periods. They, they want to have a start and an end date, and they want to give it a name. So so, so uh, we talk about the Renaissance. So we got to have a date when the Renaissance began and, and when it ended, the Industrial Revolution. We got to have a start date. We got to have an end date for that thing. And so... Uh, but I think that it's important for you to think about that markets move through cycles, they move through different periods, and they they have different ages. And I think that you know it's important to realize is that we may be in an inflection point where we're adding coming into a new age. And part of this is because, okay, when you look at what the Fed can do, uh, you know, okay, we're and this goes on to the poly crisis idea that we have multiple crises going on. Okay, well, we've got quantitative tightening we could do, but we still have a debt overhang, so we can't solve both at the same time. We've got inflation, but we also say that inflation was caused by an energy price shock that could cause a recession. So if I raise rates, I could sort of maybe get inflation down, but I'm exacerbating, you know, the energy crisis. So we're in an age of constraints for policymakers, and so consequently, you can't solve everything. So something is going to break, uh, and that doesn't mean that there's a financial break, which the Fed is talking about. Well, we're going to raise rates until something breaks. The break point is the fact is is that I can't sort of solve inflation without causing unemployment, and so so this puts a constraint in what we can do, and so that slows down what policy is going to do, and it means that there's going to be an opportunity for trends. But I think that well, I don't like the idea of prioritization. At the same time, we need to be aware 
that different ages will lead to different type of return outcomes for different strategies. Yeah, no, absolutely. And by the way, it's interesting you mentioned this uh, constraint uh, theory because uh, the 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 um, episode that I was mentioning in the very beginning, our Wednesday episode with Marco Papik, uh, he um, talked about actually how they were able to call the easing of the COVID restrictions in China before it became official. And they did that apparently by looking at some of the constraints. Um, and I can't remember his full uh, argument. People should go and listen to that uh, episode to uh, to find out. Um, but it was quite um, quite interesting, actually quite fascinating how they managed to do that. Anyways, let's move on. Uh, we're almost there. Uh, you have a point called globalization, localization, friend shoring, onshoring, sourcing. Um, where are we going to well, go with that? Well, again... I'll I'll do it again. We had the age of globalization, yeah. you know, pre-pandemic, and I think we're seeing this is that more and more, uh, we had the pandemic occur. We found that is is that there was a tremendous breakage in all of our sourcing mechanisms for factories and other products. This is that you know we could have production in China, but for parts and then build it and finalize it in the United States, we could you know get our iron ore from uh, in China from Australia we could get natural gas for Japan is uh, is coming from the uh, from the Middle East well what we're finding out is is that there's a new sense of localization and we're just seeing what this is starting to have an impact and the sense is that we've got to now onshore more of our manufacturing in the United States the uh, I'm sure the EU is thinking the same way how do we get where do we get our energy source so we now found that the united states now uh, uh, well europe imports more natural gas from the united states than it does from russia even at the, the height so we basically have replaced one supplier for another all of this is going to have an impact on prices for commodities we don't know exactly how, but you need to be aware of that. So, for example, if you look at U.S. natural gas prices and the futures markets, it was way out of line relative to the world price of natural gas. Now that because we've changed the globalization, we're changing the sourcing of commodities, now we're going to sort of see that U.S. natural gas prices is going to be tied to the world price as opposed to a local price. So U.S. natural gas prices was very, you know, weather-centric in the sense that at a cold snap in the United States, <clears throat> U.S. natural gas, Henry Hub, would explode on the upside. Warming goes right back down. Now we're going to sort of say is, is that it doesn't matter what, what happens to U.S. weather. It's going to happen what happens to global demand for natural gas. So the change in our globalization and the changing of where we source commodities and who we trade with is going to have an impact on prices and price relationships. It may not be for the pure directional trend follower as much, but for people who look at spread markets, it's going to have a big impact. And that means we're going to have to change how we look at our relationships across markets. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I mean, this is also why I'm excited about the future um, from a trend-following perspective, because I do think this changing of the world, um, most strategies are not created to be adaptive, but our strategy is created for to be adaptive. So I think that uh, um, being adaptive will be incredibly important going forward. And I actually don't think that it's just going to be in the commodity space. I also think the way capital flows in general uh, will be affected. Um, who owns uh, treasuries uh, in the future is probably going to be different from who owns it now, and so on and so forth. So um, yeah, lots of things going on at the moment, and, and I think we've just seen the tip of the iceberg on this. Final point, um, and maybe a good point to end up with, a good headline to end <laughs> up with, and that is curiosity and being a data detective. Um, how do you want to round up our conversation today with that? Well, I think that uh, an interesting way to put curiosity is uh, what we know versus what we need to know. So that gap is what you try to close with curiosity. So, uh, and what you find out is is, is that uh, you know ultimately is is that when you think about a trend follower uh, and what we do as quantitative uh, analysts 
is that we're data detectives. This is that, that it's amazing how much time we spend looking at data and then actually scrubbing data, trying to find out where it comes from. And I think that one of the reasons why trend followers sort of focus so much on price is the fact that the data detective work of trying to find out what the macro data is telling us is so difficult. So when you look at, we've got the big unemployment number that's coming out this, this next Friday. If you ever sort of dig into how they actually collect the, the unemployment data and then try to match it with jobs data, then you, know, uh, you look at other types of macro data, it's a maddening task. And so, so being a data detective is really hard. And in some sense is that why you focus on price is so primal which was something that, you know, as a recurring uh, you know, theme that I constantly talk about prices being primal is because being a data detective is so hard. Yet at the same time is, is that our curiosity as, as trend followers is constant in the sense is that, is there a new way to extract signals? Is there a better way to look at it? Is there, can I, I have the same data I've had for the last 20 years for some markets but is there a new way that I could extract signals from that data, even though the data, the data for the corn market from 10 years ago hasn't changed? You know, but can I look at it and cast it in a different way so that it could tell me something new that I didn't know before? And that's an ongoing research product. And that's what curiosity takes us. And that's also what data detectives, being a good data detective means. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And that's actually some of the things that I see on our side, internally on the research side, is just how we look at data. Um, even though, as you say, the data in a raw, in its rawest form is the same, but just how we look at it, how we use it. So I think that's a, a very valid point. Um, let's slowly wrap up uh, on that note. Um, now, it is the week of Thanksgiving. Uh, we just passed it. So I want to make sure that I give a big thanks to all of you listening Week in, week out uh, to our conversations, we simply couldn't do what we do without uh, your support. Um, and um, we really appreciate that. Um, one way of you showing thanks to what we do, on the other hand, would be to go to iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcast from and leave a rating and review. We would love to have um, you know hundreds of new rating and reviews. Um, so if you have time over this uh, long weekend, maybe for some of you, um, I would really appreciate that. Um, next week, I'm joined by Alan. So uh, if you have some topics uh, in, uh, in, in that uh, direction, um, then uh, by all means, send them to info at toptradersonplug.com. We'll make sure to do our best to discuss them. Uh, and of course, you can follow uh, me and all the co-hosts uh, on Twitter uh, and take part in our conversations, even though admittedly I'm not the most active person on Twitter other than making sure that people are aware of the latest episodes that we um, produce. Um, one thing that is new, by the way, on Twitter is that I'm publishing also on Twitter the uh, Trend Barometer. We found a way to automate that to get published also on Twitter. So you can uh, follow me on Twitter and then you also get the latest uh, Trend Barometer uh, reading. Um, that's it for now. Um, from Mark and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.